listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wezar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward to solve the greatest challenge one in 10 of our children face, child abuse. Today's episode is, we're not all having the same pandemic. We have two guests for you. One offering insights into research on the impact that the coronavirus pandemic is having on mental health, and another giving us the perspective from the field. First up is Reba Kamal, a senior policy analyst at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Then you'll hear from Carol Campbell-Swicky at Dean Norton Child Advocacy Center. Before COVID-19, about one in five adults in the U.S. reported being worried, anxious, or depressed on a regular basis. Among teenagers, a national survey found about 12% reported anxiety or depression, and that was before a global pandemic hit. What impact is the current crisis having on mental health? What factors raise the risk of problems? And what helps? And what do researchers need to keep an eye on going forward? I spoke to Rubba Kamal about current research being conducted by Kaiser Family Foundation about the mental health impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, Rubba, one of the things that I'm really wondering about, you know, I think that the recent research that the Kaiser Family Foundation um, completed is just so critical at this time. And I'm, I'm just really curious though, and starting with the baseline, So in the U.S., pre-COVID-19, what was the prevalence of mental illness among adults? That's a great question. That's a um, a wonderful place to start, Teresa, because um, what we've found is that it's a really critical aspect of uh, considering what might happen to the overall population in the short term and long term during a pandemic like this. Um, And we know that many people were facing mental health or substance use struggles before this started. So like you noted prior to the pandemic, nearly one in five adults in the U.S. reported having a mental illness in the year. And additionally, uh, nearly a third of adults reported feeling worried, nervous, or anxious. Um, So those general feelings and experiences on a regular basis, either daily, weekly, or monthly. That's a big uh, impact, a big experience that that people were having before all of this started. And of course, there had also been a shocking increase in deaths due to drug overdose over the past 20 years. Yes. And, you know, I want to talk about that um, more in just a minute, but I think many people, many listeners would be very surprised at the prevalence of mental illness in the U.S., You know, I think many people think of it as something that sort of happens to other people, or they may not realize that that's a part of their own family and affects their neighbors and people that they love and care about. And I also know that you capture that data for adolescents. Can you talk a little bit about how common, especially depression and anxiety are among adolescents, even pre-COVID-19 before we ever hit the pandemic? There aren't a lot of data um, available about some of these experiences, um, especially you know, among children and adolescents, but we do know that there have been some concerning increases in experiences and struggles with mental illness. And, and um, our most recent analysis that we put out, we did find based on the National Survey of Children's Health from 2016 to 2018, 6% of 
uh, teens, so ages 12 to 17, had depression specifically, and 10% um, had anxiety. Uh, so overall, the, both combined, um, it was 12% of adolescents uh, having either depression or anxiety. So we sort of entered the pandemic from a place of already having, you know, lots of our fellow citizens, lots of folks who are um, impacted by depression, anxiety, mental illness, and then the pandemic hit. And so I guess I'd like to just start with saying how widespread is the impact of COVID-19 on adult mental health? And just basically, how is it overall impacted the, the mental health of adults in the U.S.? Well, history has shown, you know, based on research that epidemics and pandemics can induce general stress across a population. And part of the big picture we're seeing right now is that it has already had that impact in the short term. There are a lot of people who are reporting negative effects of the stress and worry that it's causing. Uh, my colleagues here at the Kaiser Family Foundation do national polling regularly and have been um, asking people recently about their experiences during the pandemic. And when people were asked in mid-April about how the virus has impacted their lives, over half of all adults in the U.S. said that worry or stress related specifically to the coronavirus outbreak has caused at least one negative effect on their mental health and well-being. And those are specifically concerns like trouble with sleeping or eating, increased alcohol use, or worsening of chronic conditions they experience, um, for example, like diabetes. So that's a lot of worry and stress affecting a lot of adults all at the same time in the short term. Well, you know, I think that we can just see this in our daily life. You know, I completely believe the polling because even when I'm thinking about conversations I have with my family or work colleagues or friends, even individuals who otherwise seem to take, you know, troubles in stride largely, you can just see that this has been very overwhelming. And, you know, even a among those groups, you know, folks have reported not sleeping well, being consumed with anxiety, uh, being worried or feeling worried all the time. So I think that this is something that is really impacting all of us. And if we're personally not feeling that way, then we're very fortunate because certainly we have friends and loved ones and others who probably are. One of the impacts around this, and I, I guess I would say just one of the unique things about this situation that we're in is the level of social isolation that we all are, of course, experiencing because of necessary stay-at-home orders and quarantines and those kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about how social isolation itself contributes to the mental health burden? Yes, definitely. And to speak to your, to your first point, that's a, a big consideration right now, not only because of the pandemic and the overall public health crisis that it presents, but also because of the economic crisis and the social isolation, like you mentioned. That's a lot for people to be um, dealing with on a regular basis now all at once. Uh, it's not just one worrying factor. So that's something that we looked at in, in our analysis and considered is that right now, there are a lot of people who are newly experiencing things like trouble with sleeping, um, perhaps, you know, drinking more than they used to, or having trouble focusing, um, feeling all, a lot of 
worry and perhaps anxiety. So that's a lot of people newly potentially in need of mental health or substance use care or guidance. And uh, in addition to that, there were already so many people experiencing mental health um, issues or mental illness or substance use struggles. And it's likely that with all of this added pressures, uh, those experiences could be exacerbated and, and people who were already in need of care or trying to seek care or, or getting care you may have more need because of all of this. Uh, so um, to speak to the social isolation in particular, that's a very, very important factor out of all of this. A lot of critical public health actions have been taken to slow the spread of the virus and um, to aim to reduce suffering and loss overall. But part of the trade-off of emergency public health measures like the social distancing, the business and school closures, and the shelter-in-place orders is that people can face greater isolation and in many cases financial distress. Uh, and we know from research that's been done that experiences like social isolation and job loss are linked to poor mental health outcomes. Uh, and one of the, the things we've considered and, and it's additionally important to, to look at is that social isolation will affect some people already facing unique risks for things like depression, possibly suicidal ideation. For example, older adults uh, you know, have unique risks when it comes to mental illness. And I really say so many groups have unique risks you know, in terms of how um, stresses, worries, how different factors that can affect our mental health and well-being, how those present. And, and right now, for example, uh, due to the pandemic, many older people in the US might be separated from their loved ones. Um, they might be separated from caregivers or receiving care in a new or distanced way. And what we've seen is that there's already a, a really persistent problem of loneliness in the country. And so this, this sort of increased potential feelings of isolation, experiences of isolation, you know, increases the risk of the way that might impact people's mental health and well-being. You're right. All of these things are very interconnected, and there are lots of things we can talk about about each and every one of them. But I want to stay on the piece around social isolation a little bit, because it's not as though social isolation also was uncommon um, before this. Loneliness has been well studied in the U.S. and around the world, actually. And I wonder if you could talk about a, a little bit about the way in which loneliness is a risk to mental health, period, whatever its cause. Yes, um, and that, that's what, as you mentioned, there's, there has already been a lot of discussion about loneliness as its own crisis before the pandemic because of the way that so many people can experience it, whether you know, it's, it's older adults perhaps living on their own um, or in long-term care facilities, um, perhaps not seeing their loved ones, whether it's people who work regularly um, but don't have the time or, or the capacity to um, have social connections or to routinely you know, see others or see family. Um, There's so many ways that, that social isolation can um, come the norm mm -hmm. in people's lives. 
Well, and you know, it's interesting. I can't remember the year that book Bowling Alone was published, but the whole issue of social isolation really was highlighted at that point. And I know there's been just so much more research since then, particularly about the impact on older adults. Uh, I remember about a year ago, I think, in England, a very large study was published regarding the sort of prevalence of loneliness and the way that it was pervasive in the lives of older adults. And I think, you know, if that was true before COVID-19, then now with the increased health risk that older individuals have to COVID-19, so they're having to be even more isolated than the rest of us, it just seems that that would have an amplifying effect. It's very possible. Um, you know, what, what we saw in, in the polling that was done earlier, um, so I believe in late March, um, we actually found that older adults at that point were less likely than younger adults to report that warrior stress related to the coronavirus had at that point had a negative impact on their mental health. Um, but we do know that research has shown that older adults are at risk of poor mental health um, because of things like loneliness and, and not only that, but uh, potentially bereavement or you know, separations from family and, and some of the things that come with, with aging. What we've seen in the data is that older adults are particularly at risk for depression. It's sometimes uh, misdiagnosed or undertreated among older adults as well as some other populations. So there's you know, a risk of things like depression, um, potentially suicidal ideation as a related uh, mental health um, risk when people are experiencing loneliness. One of the sort of, I don't like to throw too many numbers at everyone, um, but we did find that in 2018, older adults accounted for nearly one out of five of all suicides in the U.S. Um, and it's particularly high um, among older males. Well, when you think about what a wonderful resource grandparents can be to their grandchildren and um, how right now is a time that it's, you know, older people may well be more isolated, but there's also a way in which we could reach out to them to make them less isolated, you know, and that technology can be helpful with that. I was talking with a colleague the other day who she's a grandmother and she's tutoring her grandchildren, you know, both her daughter and her daughter's husband are working during the day. They've been lucky enough to be able to remote work. And so she's been willing to pitch in and really try to do some tutoring to take a little bit of that burden of homeschooling that you know so many parents are doing right now um, off of them. And so I think that in the same way that it can increase, you know, I, social isolation can be increased. This is also an opportunity for us to be creative and outreach to older individuals and make sure that they are not, you know, feeling forgotten, uh, feeling disconnected, and uh, being viewed as not actively contributing to family life right now. So can you talk a little bit about, I know that, and I found this interesting, because I hadn't really thought about it before, but of course, this is not the first quarantine that's ever happened to anybody. And there are prior studies about quarantines and the impact of quarantine on individuals' mental health. What have we learned or do we have any awareness yet? And it might be too early, but are we aware of how this may be different from that, the same as similar to or unique from, you know, other prior quarantine experiences in terms of people's 
mental health and substance use? Great question. Um, just a, a comment on, on your example before. I think that's, that's a wonderful example. I think that anything people can do to reach out to older adults, to, to anyone who, who might be struggling right now can be really helpful. And that's an important piece of when we look at who might be, who might be really struggling in particular. There isn't a lot of data right now yet in terms of you know, so many of the, the aspects of how this pandemic and how the, the economic crisis are really playing out. Um, so it's hard to say really how this in particular might be unique from other pandemics. It really is so far reaching though. And as you mentioned, we know from, from studies of, of previous outbreaks of diseases where quarantine was required that quarantine in particular can lead to negative mental health outcomes. Um, things like uh, suicide are, are a, a potential outcome. And so those are things that I think it will be important to continue looking at as we collect more data, as we ask more of these questions and try to uh, try to assess what's going on as it continues and as it develops, which is very difficult. Well, I think you noted something that's really critical, which is that usually when we're talking about an outbreak or even an epidemic, we're talking really in most cases about places that were fairly geographically limited where that was occurring, right? So one of the things that's really quite different about this is there's been a global impact and it's been, uh, you know, thinking about our own country, it's been in essentially every community. And so it is interesting to think about the ways in which our knowledge about what you know, was the case in something like Ebola or what was the case in something like SARS or MERS or some of those things, um, that, that really this is going to play out and affect all of us. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody right now who feels that they've not been impacted at all by social isolation. I mean, unless they just weren't observing a stay-at-home order at all. But just in talking with people, even people who are not complaining of depression or anxiety or those kinds of things are complaining, I think, about cabin fever, you know, missing their friends, grieving the loss of their new normal routines and all of those kinds of things. So it feels to me that while not everyone may have had their um, depression or anxiety affected, we're all impacted by this pandemic in terms of our well-being. It really does have such a far-reaching impact. And, you know, we've seen guidance come out from the World Health Organization, from the CDC. I've seen some uh, guidance specifically about stress and mental health from different states. And there's consistently this guidance about all of these experiences that people might be, might be experiencing in their everyday life, like you mentioned, um, all kinds of worry, stress, just disruption to routine and how important it is to try to maintain routines or establish routines right now. Um, how important it is, for example, for families and parents to try to uh, help children through this by setting up routines, by uh, you know, limiting consumption or as, as best as possible, if it's even possible right now, right, to, to limit consumption of, of coverage about mm -hmm. what's going on and to, to try to establish a sort of calm and confident approach to explaining these things. Yeah, sort of a new yes, normal. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and just to your point about how this is affecting really likely everyone in some way that's something i've just been considering is that you know, my colleagues at kff have been tracking so many of the implications of this for different groups um, and you know it's it's not just the implications for different groups mental health but also looking at what's happening in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, um, looking at how people can manage HIV during COVID-19, looking at the risks for people who are low-wage workers right now, um, many of whom not only face the risk um, to their health, since a lot of low-wage workers are you know, still in those uh, essential jobs where where they often have to go into work um, for example grocery workers and others who are providing the services people need to to get by um, there's also concerns for those who are incarcerated there's specific concerns for um, for pregnant women for those who are uninsured right now and so um, you know, we've put out resources about the implications for, for these different groups. And I think that really speaks to just the, the way that these main factors right now, the, the public health crisis, the economic crisis, the social isolation, and, and the fear uh, around this, this unknown, right? This very, very big threat to, to health and, and well-being, how all of that is playing out in, in all of our lives right now, but affecting people in, in different ways. Well, I thought it was really interesting that the report itself did talk a lot about fear because it's a little bit different than depression and anxiety, right? And often that fear is a little bit untethered. I mean, it relates to the risk of COVID-19, but it's a little untethered to a person's specific risk sometimes. In other words, a person can be more at afraid than they are at risk, actually. And one of the things you were talking about a moment ago made me think of this because you were talking about trying to, where possible, limit kids' exposure to media reports around this, since, of course, the numbers are very large. It's very scary, that content. And I was uh, talking to a reporter this week. He was talking about the difficulty even with her own children. You know, she herself, as a journalist, knows that her children shouldn't be just consuming that information, and she's been vigilant about trying to prevent them from doing so, but just how challenging that is because, of course, they're worried. So they're seeking out, you know, that kind of information, especially if they're not being um, sort of constantly reassured, then they're trying to sort of get the latest information about COVID-19, which then means often consuming really difficult information. I mean, information that would be difficult for adults and that children are ill-equipped to handle. And so I think that many parents are struggling with that um, question about how to go ahead and reassure their kids when they themselves are feeling um, fearful about this because there is a lot unknown. And I think this is not going to end, you know, immediately by any means. And we're still a ways from a vaccine and all of those things. So I think that this sense of trying to get to a new normal is going to really take us some time. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about substance use and substance abuse in particular, because I found that just a fascinating part of the report. I hadn't really thought about the way in which not only that individuals might increase, you know, it might increase substance abuse, but also the way it's impacted the availability of treatment. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's, a, that's an important 
consideration. Um, and, and we don't have a lot of data about the specific ways that, that those with substance use um, disorders or who may have risks related to substance use, um, how exactly this might affect their well-being. But one of the you know, big unknowns right now is how people's access to care in the short term and the long term will be impacted um, because we already know that the mental health system going into this pandemic was strained in a lot of ways and that um, people who perhaps needed mental health or substance use services um, weren't always able to access those services before. And so that's a concern now because as I mentioned with more people needing care and people who already needed it, still needing care, perhaps needing additional or, or, or new types of care. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of potential need. Um, and those are things that are, are likely to extend into the long term, right? And so one of the concerns right now is that due to uh, this, this need for public health response, like sheltering in place and closing businesses, closing all except the, the most essential services people need to access, a lot of people uh, have not been able to continue or start new uh, treatment in person with, with their mental health providers. So that's a, a struggle right now for many, and it's still unknown what's really happening. We do have a little bit of, of information on that from our most recent polling uh, that my colleagues have done which was in mid to late April. And uh, people were asked if since the beginning of the outbreak in February, in, in the US at least, if they had needed different types of care but have been unable to get it. And 3% uh, of people said that they needed mental health care services but were unable to get that care. Um, so that's sort of a, a, an initial sense that we have. Um, but of course, there are so many factors at play. There has been a federal loosening of some of the regulations around HIPAA compliance for telehealth services, uh, and it's unclear how, how that you know, might be affecting people's access to care, but it's possible that uh, you know, some providers have been able to enhance their ability to provide telehealth mental health services. So, so that's an ongoing unknown as well. I'm curious because I think, you know, for children's advocacy centers and other child abuse professionals, that issue about access to care is, of course, a critical one, both because you want to prevent abuse from happening in the first place. And secondly, once it has happened, you need to um, get resources to kids and families quickly to reduce, you know, the trauma that kids have experienced. And you know, in our network, because we have so many mental health clinicians as a part of that who are providing work through Children's Day Advocacy Centers to kids who've been abused, we really helped uh, clinicians transition to delivering TFCBT in particular via telehealth technology. And, you know, what I was really heartened by is how many clinicians were so interested in, in learning to provide it in that way. I mean, it does take, it's more than just, you know, sort of 
FaceTiming someone, right? You know, these evidence-based interventions have specific things that need to be done as a part of them. And so converting that to a, an online format or virtual format uh, can be challenging, but I was just really heartened by the level of interest. We had the webinars we conducted around that were absolutely jam-packed. People were watching all of the archived ones. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of clinicians. So I feel like there's a real hunger for that. And I think that it will be interesting to see what of that really persists broadly um, post-pandemic, because it seems to me that if clinicians have a good experience with that, and if patients, you know, if clients themselves have a good experience with it, it may allow us to reach kids and families who otherwise couldn't be reached with mental health care. That's great to hear. You know, one thing I've been reflecting on in with regards to you know so many aspects of what's happening is that right now is really a time of so many unknowns, but. Uh, but that there has been, you know, a lot of ongoing research, a lot of um, new, you know, either modalities of care or new research into things that experts in, in infectious disease are considering, or that economists are considering, others are considering, and you know, always ways that we're trying to understand better how different groups are affected. And then in this pretty sudden moment of all of these unknowns, all of these uncertainties popping up and um, there needing to be a lot of immediate responses. It's really a time, I think, when, uh, when, when it's an opportunity for experts to come together and to look at what's the best understanding we have of what might be needed um, right now, what might be needed down the line. And, and you know, even given the uncertainty and the inability to say this is the correct approach or this is the best approach, um, which is sometimes hard to do in the moment, right? It's, it's a real opportunity, I think, for that coming together and that, uh, that um, amassing of, of knowledge that people have um, to, to do the best we can. Well, and it's a time of innovation. I remember an article I read a couple of years ago in the Journal of Social Change, and, and it, was, it was fascinating because it was picking apart how the polio vaccine was developed. And it was talking about how to make, you know, when you're trying to address a widespread problem, what's the best way to approach that? And basically it was talking about the success of try everything. You know, that it wasn't that there was one central group researching it and all the information was pouring into that one central group. It was that all the work being done by scientists was shared among those scientists while they independently pursued their own particular, you know, aspect of the research. So that many, many, many experiments were going on at once. And the ones that looked promising were really launched into the field, frankly, probably before we would now feel comfortable with something being released. But that somehow this try everything approach really did yield an effective vaccine much earlier than you otherwise would have expected that. And um, I'm going to, you know, now even talking about that article makes me want to go back and reread it. So I'm going to have to dig that out of my um, out of my archive. But I've been thinking about this also as a time of innovation. I mean, we've been talking about all the negative impacts and they're real. We can't discount them. They are absolutely real. But it's also a time when we're really seeing tremendous innovation and a move forward. I mean, this pandemic is also catalytic. Um, let me give you an example. So 
in um, in our world, when kids make an allegation of abuse, they go through a forensic interview, and that's done uh, typically face to face. That's a, a face to face interaction that happens between the child and a trained forensic interviewer. And there's been a little bit of interest in the past about the idea of could that be done remotely, you know, because there are areas that are so rural or so frontier, so remote that there's not ready access to a trained forensic interviewer. Well, we were contacted by researchers who've been looking at that question. And they said at the beginning of the pandemic, they'd actually contacted us before then. And we're like, yeah, we're interested in that research. Share that with us and, and we'll take a look at that and whatever. Well, as it turns out, when the pandemic hit, we had the need to develop guidelines almost overnight about how teleforensic interviews would work and pull together, just as you're saying, a group of researchers and uh, expert practitioners and subject matter experts to really look at that. And we developed uh, guidelines very quickly that are now being used essentially in a large scale field experiment uh, right this very minute. And we were, for another podcast interview, we were talking to those researchers and they said, you know, this has probably moved that practice ahead 10 years from where it would have otherwise been without the pandemic. And I'm guessing that uh, telemental health, it's the same thing, you know, and telehealth in general has really been catalyzed by this. So I think, you know, not that we're making light of all of the terrible impacts of it, but I do think we should also be really looking for the opportunities and the opportunities to, to learn more. So the question for you then is, what is the Kaiser Family Foundation looking at related to that, looking at opportunities to learn more so that we can all practice better in this space and moving forward? I would say that given that we, we know that it's likely to have not just this ongoing short-term impact, but a long-term impact for however long this lasts, it's really important to continue to try to measure as best as we can each step of the way how that growing effect on mental health and substance use looks, but to also try to assess how different things are working. Um, and that's something, you know, I think we'll need more, you know, as, as a collective, we'll need to continue trying to understand is, is what has changed when it comes to, you know, the offering of telehealth um, and how has it impacted people's access to care? And so those aren't, those aren't numbers that we have yet, but it's those kinds of questions that I think it will be important to continue assessing, as well as continuing to look at the different ways uh, various groups are experiencing either the ongoing negative effects or the potential alleviations due to some of the, the, the things being tried. And in particular, one thing that my colleagues have been tracking are the data coming out about the disproportionate impact that this pandemic is having on different groups mm. based on race mm. and ethnicity. And you yes. know, we know that in a lot of ways, people in communities of color, people who are low income, um, people who are uninsured already face so many risks of, of poor health outcomes, poor mental health outcomes, and that you know, has been pervasive before this pandemic and, and uh, it continues to, to, to yeah, play it's out. exacerbated by it dramatically when you're looking, especially at the COVID-19 deaths. I mean, it's just shocking some of the disparity yeah. based on uh, race and ethnicity and all of the, um, the health risk 
that attend to that. I think though, you know, I worry a little bit about whether those of us in the field who are practitioners, I think we're very conversant with the added risk. I wonder if we're tracking as well what's working to help address some of that. And so I'm just curious about what you're aware of, if anything, that's being done to really track what is working. That's not something that we're looking at at directly right now. It's a little bit outside of our realm in the sense that, you know, we're we're very much the numbers people and uh, we consider the implications of, of different policies or different options that are out there. We don't advocate for one particular solution over another, although it's still important to try to track the impacts of, of different things that, that people may be accessing. Those numbers really are not available yet. Um, that's something, though, that, you know, with our polling, we have started trying to get a sense, like I had mentioned, of whether people are saying um, there's an immediate need for, for mental health services that haven't been met, um, but a whole lot isn't known yet. We've all been paying very close attention to um, what has been going on with healthcare workers, their increased risk for catching COVID-19 in the first place, but also just, you know, you just see them in the media, just exhausted, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with cases. And I'm just wondering what this report found about healthcare workers, their households, as it related to their mental health right now. What we've found, and and I'll I'll point to some of our latest polling numbers again, from mid to late April, we looked at what households who have a healthcare worker, um, whether it's a healthcare worker themselves responding or just a household that has any healthcare worker, we've we asked about their experiences with the worry and stress related to this outbreak. That can include things like worry about potentially um, being exposed to and contracting the virus themselves, potentially bringing it home unawares that they might have it, um, worries around the potential shortages for themselves and their their colleagues when it comes to the personal protective gear that we're hearing um, so much about. And we've found um, that 64% of those in healthcare worker households are reporting a negative mental health impact. So those specific uh, negative outcomes I mentioned, like the trouble sleeping, trouble eating, or increased use of alcohol or some worsened impact on an existing chronic disease. So that's such a huge impact that 64% of people, specifically in households with healthcare workers, compared to the overall average of adults saying that they have this negative mental health impact, which is 56% already so high. Well, and one really wonders about um, not only healthcare workers, but other people who are first responders, what we might see in their data related to that, who are also, you know, exposed fairly frequently to people who have COVID-19 or could be um, exposed to that. And yeah, it just seems to me that one of the things that we can learn from this is how much additional support those who are healthcare workers and first responders um, really need through something like this so that we're better prepared in the future 
you know, not that we're hoping there will be future pandemics, but there probably will be, that we're, that we're better prepared for really providing the kind of support that they need in order to do this critically important job that they've been tasked with. That's one of the main points that have been brought up in those guidelines from organizations like the World Health Organization and CDC is that for first responders, there's a specific emotional toll to consider and they've offered tips for things people can do to reduce that unique impact this all might have on them. Um, But it's it's also important to consider that there's already this um, increased experience of the negative mental health impact among that group in particular. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for not only coming on to the podcast, but more importantly, contributing to the research. I think it's just so vital that we understand what's happening right now. And we really appreciate the Kaiser Family Foundation's commitment to continuing to track this. Um, This important information will help us as we plan our own mental health care services to kids and families. So thank Thank you. you for having us and thank you for having me. So that's the perspective from the research lab. And after talking to Rubba, I wanted to also share with you the perspective from the field, what children's advocacy centers are dealing with every single day. I spoke to Carol Campbell-Sawicki, Executive Director of Dean Norton Child Advocacy Center in Charleston, and a Clinical Assistant Professor at the Medical University of South Carolina about the mental health impact of the pandemic on her CAC's clients, her staff, and her team partners. In a recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey, it found that 45% of adults disclosed that they had had um, some negative impact to their mental health because of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think it's great that you're focusing on this and highlighting this because we know that um, parents' emotional state and coping skills really impact how children are coping with things, including the pandemic, but then also, of course, how they would be coping with abuse um, in the midst of the pandemic. So part of what we know about how parents and people in general respond to stressful life events is that it can be really hard emotionally, and they might have symptoms like anxiety and depression and just worries And this pandemic has been a really stressful life event. You know, it's something that for some people who maybe are in vulnerable health classes or they have loved ones that are vulnerable from a health perspective has been really scary for them in terms of worrying about the health impacts and possibly worrying about death. And then seeing so much of that on the news, if they're really watching a lot, can even have them have even more of a negative impact. Um, in terms of how they're doing emotionally. So we know as CAC professionals that when there are stressful life events that lead people to have worries and fears and sadness, and then they're isolated from a lot of their social networks and coping skills, that can compound things and make it really hard for people to manage emotionally with what's going on. And you know, one of the additional stressors is that I think the last numbers I saw, 36 million adults had applied for unemployment, which is, I mean, these are just staggering numbers. So what do we know about the impact of job loss on people's mental health and how that impacts families? Yeah, well, I mean, when people have financial uncertainty um, and the uncertainty of it, kind of regardless of socioeconomic class, really, I mean, just people in general do not like uncertainty. It's hard for us. And if they are worried about meeting their basic needs, um, housing, food, 
other, you know, clothing that leads to worries and sadness and stress. Um, you know, it can even lead to depression because they may have negative thoughts about themselves in terms of the fact that they haven't been able to be, be in a job that has been maintained right now. Um, so that's definitely a stress. And then actual, you know, so there's just thinking about how it might happen and have a financial impact can lead to problems emotionally. And then when those are realized because people have actually lost their job and they are then in the midst of dealing with having to have the lights on and pay the rent and they don't have the financial resources, that is a real threat to their safety and that of their children that leads to real worries. I mean, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that in order for people to feel safe and emotionally secure, they have to have their basic needs met. And if families are struggling with that, it's really hard for them to even think about doing coping skills because they're trying so hard to meet their basic needs. Well, I think one of the interesting things that you were talking about is this impact of also being declared an essential or non-essential worker. And I had a colleague that was talking to me about that as well and about the emotional reaction of employees. I mean, on the on the one hand, if you're considered non-essential, you might be relieved for health reasons that you're not having to go in and directly serve clients. But on the other hand, wants right. to be labeled non-essential. And so right. what is the emotional impact of that? I don't even know that until you started talking about that and she shared that with me that it even had struck me that that would be the case. Right. I mean, I think it's hard for people emotionally. And then also even who, even people who are labeled essential aren't always treated as essential workers. Right. I mean, we're talking, it's an interesting thing that's going on in the country that, um, you know, first responders, law enforcement, medical professionals, kind of have always been thought of as essential workers, grocery store personnel, bus drivers have not always had that same respect as a profession that medical professionals have. And yet they are also putting themselves at risk because of going to the grocery store so that people have food. And so I think it's even hard for people who are in those kind of higher risk professions but aren't getting the support emotionally the way that the country has really responded with support for some of the people who are in the higher profile essential roles. I think that's hard. And then like you're saying, for people whose jobs have been labeled as non-essential, it devalues that work and can be really hard for them. Even though, you know, it, it could be an important role. It's one that in the midst of spreading, you know, risking spreading an illness that can have a negative impact is just not a role that um, that has been something that people think is is deemed essential right now, which I think is just hard for people who've chosen that as their profession to manage that disconnect. Well, and I think then there's these sort of strange gray areas where, frankly, a lot of child abuse professionals find themselves, which is they really right. needed to continue to report to work because there were kids and families for which there were such active child protection issues that that work could not be put off. And at the same time, because they may not have been technically declared essential by you know, government policymakers, they may not have had the same access uh, to PPE and other things. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that's an interesting emotional burden that, you know, our workers are facing because of that and have been facing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's been, um, you know, just an interesting thing for children's advocacy centers you know, most of the children's advocacy centers are standalone nonprofits. So not necessarily healthcare centers, even though we work with healthcare providers, we don't have the same training in terms of having been fitted for properly fitting N95 masks. Mm -hmm. You know, or like you're saying, having access, ready access and an ability to purchase that PPE. 
Um, but at the same time, we have been in this position of needing to stay open. I think it's led to a lot of uncertainty for people in those roles because when they went into the profession, they didn't realize that there might come a point where they're putting themselves in harm's way. Whereas for physicians or nurses, that's part of their training that they get, you know, from infectious disease perspectives, they, I think, are more comfortable with that risk because it's part of their initial training. Whereas the initial training for forensic interviewers or therapists typically does not have training about reducing the risk for infectious disease, unless those people have at some point worked at a hospital. And I think that's led to more nervousness among CAC staff. Some of it is real if the CAC hasn't been able to get access to proper PPE. Well, and, and the other thing that's interesting, you know, we worked with um, a reporter on a set of video diaries about the experience of child abuse intervention folks, whether they were CAC employees or MDT members during this time. And one of the ones that they decided to include in that story, which I was so fascinated by, was a person who worked in a CAC talking about really that the most stressful part of this entire thing had been the arguments she was getting into with loved ones about the fact that she was continuing to serve clients and their worries about her bringing home an illness to them. And I think we sometimes forget that, you know, that's a worry not just of hospital workers or bus drivers or grocery workers, but we're included in that group of people who have to worry about what we're bringing home to, to family members and that added stress around that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is an added stress and one that, again, um, if, there, if the CAC doesn't know about or it doesn't have access to PPE, uh, or they're not following that, that's an added risk and layer that, you know, even those in medical professions ideally aren't facing, you know, unless they've had a shortage of PPE. One of the things you touched on earlier related to social isolation and loneliness, which now states are beginning to reopen, but certainly with social distancing measures in place, you know, that's still an issue. And then we have all of these kids, you know, 30 million kids who've been out of school and away from their friends. And the stories that I've seen have really reported on social isolation and loneliness in the context of older adults, typically. But I'm wondering how you think this is impacting kids. So some of what we have been seeing is that kids are definitely having a hard time with the isolation of not seeing their friends, but also not seeing some of the other protective and supportive adults in their lives. So teachers are, have such an important role in terms of child development and growth and kids form a bond with them and they're not necessarily having that contact, which I think has been hard for children, but also for preteens and teens who are on social media, there's this double edge, social media can be great for connecting, but also can, the you know, there's sort of this curve of, it's helpful in terms of connection and then over about two hours a day is detrimental mm -hmm. because kids, um, sort of obsess about how many likes they have and um, and it what minds up becoming mindless and then there's some data about blue screen and how that can impact people's moods. Um, so we've definitely seen some of the teens and preteens actually withdrawing and and feeling very sad and not feeling connected to their friends because it's not a genuine connection the way that they can get in person. Well, I think that what's interesting um, was I heard a story, and I can't remember if it was NPR or something else, the other day, and it was um, a child psychologist talking about how he personally felt that uh, child development specialists and child psychologists should be a part of the discussion 
about reopening schools and that while physical health has gotten a lot of attention, psychological safety and, and child development hasn't necessarily, and he wasn't advocating just a wholesale reopen of schools by any means, but I thought it was really interesting that it really hasn't been much of a discussion. You know, we've been talking about we must keep kids safe with this, but then what are we doing to try to make sure that they're still having good, healthy growth and development, especially psychologically, um, during this time? I don't know. Maybe I've been missing stories about that, but I feel like I haven't seen much on that. No, I completely agree. And I have seen a couple of stories. I think one was from NPR um, about the risk that there will be this kind of mental health pandemic next. So I'm starting to see a little, a little bit of information about the fact that this is having such a negative impact emotionally and behaviorally on adults and children, but not the conversation that you're talking about of having child psychologists and even you know people with expertise on stress and trauma as part of the conversation about reopening, which I wholeheartedly agree is so important um, because children are worried. And so for some children, particularly if they had a history of abuse and sort of underlying anxiety related to that, they're at higher risk for then having emotional problems related to the pandemic. Or if they're having difficulty adjusting to the pandemic and now experience abuse, that combination of stress plus trauma of abuse puts them at even greater risk of mental health problems. And so I think if we can set things up as schools are reopening and other businesses are reopening to have a sense of psychological safety, and part of how they do that is through really good communication about how we're making the environment safe, following advice of medical professionals and communicating that so kids know it, that alone can help with their sense of psychological safety. So, you know, I have, think having psychologists and others with mental health expertise as part of the conversation is so important and hope that that will happen more moving forward. You know, it's really interesting what you're talking about, because I was looking at, again, another Kaiser Family Foundation survey where they looked at data from 2016 to 2018, and among adolescents, 12% um, of them reported that they were experiencing anxiety and or depression at that point. And one wonders what the percentage is, you know, right now, if you were to poll the right. same group, what should we be doing to really, you know, anticipating that it could be exacerbated? What should we be doing right now to really help these kids? I think some of it is training adults to recognize symptoms of depression. So recognizing, you know, withdrawal, sadness, depression among teenagers, and also boys can sometimes externalize symptoms of depression. So outburst and anger, um, you know, training people in a role to recognize and make referrals to mental health is really important. And then there's also an access issue. So from a policy level, ensuring that there's parity and access to mental health services is really important so that you know paying for services isn't a barrier. Mental health coverage from a lot of insurance carriers is just really low and a financial burden for families. And if you layer that on top of unemployment right now where people may not even have health benefits, that's a real barrier for access to quality mental health care that these kids may need. So I think there's kind of that policy piece and training piece and some of it, I mean, what we've been talking about within my work is also getting information directly to teens because they are sometimes so hesitant to reach out and there's a stigma associated with mental health. Um, so some of it is helping them realize that if they're not feeling like doing anything, if they're suddenly having 
crying spells or outbursts toward their friends and they're kind of just having all these emotions, you know, there are hotlines that they could call, like making sure that the suicide hotline is out there. I have definitely heard um, that there's been a spike in terms of thoughts of self-harm and people not knowing where to turn if they're having those thoughts. So part of it is just widespread education that there are resources that, that people can use and getting it directly to teens I think is really important because they may feel, you know, they may not wanna to talk to their parent about it right now. Um, so they may be in a position to still reach out and get support, which would be really important. You know, we know this entire pandemic is a potentially traumatic, you know, event for kids and families as well, but kids especially, and many have lost a family member. You know, if you really look at the numbers, it's not unlikely that a child might have lost a grandparent or a beloved teacher or someone else. Can you just talk a little bit about the impact of unexpected grief and loss for a child? for those folks who have lost someone that they cared about as a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so traumatic bereavement is, you know, one of the categories of a potentially traumatic event in and of itself. So we have the context of this pandemic, which is stressful and potentially traumatic for some children and their caregivers, and then layer it on top of that a loss. Um, so traumatic bereavement. And part of, you know, bereavement, the loss of a loved one due to death in and of itself is stressful. And there's a process um, that, that people go through in terms of mourning the loss of their loved one. When the death happens in the context of something really unexpected or traumatic like this, where it kind of happened. Um, and you know, for some children, they've lost someone who wasn't even in a vulnerable category. So it really was unexpected and happened over the course of weeks. And even if there, it was somebody who maybe was in a more vulnerable category, it still is this kind of unexpected and pretty quick in the matter of a few months type of event. So when the characteristics of the loss themselves are traumatic, that event in and of itself kind of impedes children going through the normal grieving process. So they become so focused on the death and a lot of times you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, avoiding the context mm. of the death. So not wanting to think about or, you know, it's kind of this dual, they have intrusive thoughts about the illness, about how the person maybe died, about, you know, there's been things that I've seen about people who have passed away with coronavirus dying by themselves. That being one of the characteristics of the death can really lead to intrusive thoughts and nightmares just about the person's death itself and the experience of dying. And that then leads the child to avoid thinking about those things and avoid thinking about the person, and then they never get to that normal grieving process, which is feeling sadness about them dying and thinking about positive memories of this person um, and having a memorial together with family, which they can't do right now, that is part of the normal grieving process that's natural for people to do. So what you wanna do is be able to support children actually going through that sadness, even though it's hard, um, but the characteristics of the death being traumatic leads them to avoid that whole grieving process. If you were talking to a parent um, about how to support their child, let's say they had a loved one that passed, and of course, as you're saying, the typical rituals that you can go through are really not available in terms of a memorial, you know, a large memorial service or funeral that involves the community and the extended family. What would you advise them to do to help them support the child really grieving this um, and 
you know, not avoiding those thoughts in the way that you're describing. Right. Um, so part of it is giving them the opportunity to talk through them, but not necessarily forcing them to talk through their thoughts and feelings about what's happened. So, it, you know, it could be a time when the parent, you know, sits with the child and says, hey, I want to talk to you about, if it's a grandparent, about grandma passing away, you know, tell me what you're thinking about that. Tell me what's going on for you in terms of how grandma died and, and what you're worried about or just what you're thinking about it. And so giving the child a chance to just talk about it and say like, whatever it is that they're worrying. So some kids may have these traumatic reactions, intrusive thoughts, others may not. Um, just like kids reacting to any traumatic event. So if children are able to talk through it and just say, I just miss grandma and they start getting to those pieces where it is just sadness over the loss of the person, then the parent can move past talking about what's happened and some children might not need to talk about that. But they do need to maybe do something together to say, let's have a memorial for grandma at home. Mm -hmm. And let's all think about a favorite time that we were with her and we can all share that story. Um, you know, let's have pictures of her so that we can remember her life and celebrate her life. So they still can do that together as a family and then not avoid it. The pieces of that grieving process, um, you know, that really are important to move through is kind of sharing those positive activities together. And before they do that, the parent can just give the child an opportunity to ask questions about how the person died and to share their thoughts and worries and for the parent to be able to um, support them and say, I hear you. And that's really hard, you know, and just be that kind of positive figure to hear those things. Some of it, which is tough about grief is that some of it's just feeling those emotions and being able to be heard and then move past them and not let it interfere. You know, one of the things that this made me think about is, you know, we're all in this process of reopening and, you know, here in DC that for us won't uh, even begin until June 8th, but every state is somewhere in that process. And while on the one hand, I think many children and adults will be thrilled to at least have some contact with the outside world, I, I can imagine that also being somewhat a source of anxiety, especially if you had lost a loved one to COVID-19, you might have very mixed feelings about being far more exposed to other people. Um, with your worries, just sort of what's your advice for child abuse professionals and then for the general public in terms of helping people sort of cope with that transition, that it's not just, you know, oh, yay, we're reopened, but that also there can be this more complex reaction to it. Right. Um, I think part of that, you know, the reactions that people have, a lot of that is driven by their perception of the level of risk. So if they have had a loved one die, they certainly recognize that this can have pretty serious consequences. Um, and they've certainly seen that happen on a wide scale, you know, on the news and with people talking about it. If people are individually vulnerable in terms of their health or their loved one's health, there's a high likelihood they'll be more nervous as people, as things open up. And then just some children are a bit more anxious, especially if they had either clinical levels of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so they might've already had thoughts about cleanliness or germs. They are at very high risk for those symptoms getting worse as things open up. Um, so some of it is just getting, you know, as adults, us understanding where people are on that continuum and recognizing that if people know a loved one that's passed away or have someone in a high risk category, they're more likely to be nervous as things open up. 
And what we can do with that is help them understand the safety precautions that are being taken to still keep the environment safe. Even with things opening up, most states have physical distancing things in place and other precautions to keep people safe. So it's a little bit different than how things were before. And that can help to you know, minimize some of those worries that kids have as things are opening up so that they understand, oh, the adults are still doing things to keep people safe. We just needed some time to see how things, you know, just to get those things in place. Um, so it's reminding them about those things that people can do from safety perspective. And helping them to know that, you know, there are still helping professionals like doctors that are there if somebody does get sick. It's also being pretty matter of fact about even though people have died, the risk has been relatively low, which is a good thing. Um, so helping them to understand on a good developmental level, the reasons behind the reopening and that it is driven by the fact that there are safety precautions in place. It's so interesting that you say this because I, I saw a little flurry on one of our listservs. It was really about worries that children might feel very anxious if they saw someone in a mask. And I think, you know, just as I'm listening to you talk, it makes me think that there's a way to couch that, that actually might make a child feel more safe to see that. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. I mean, if they know that this mask is to help keep you safe, and they understand that, you know, you can even say as you're setting an appointment to say like people in the office are going to be wearing masks. We're going to ask families, you know, if they decide to ask families to wear masks coming in. Um, but even just to say like our staff is wearing masks and that's to keep you guys safe because that's part of our job as helpers. Then absolutely they can see that as something that's actually help them feel safer as they're coming in. Carol, if you could wave your magic wand and have three policy wishes for policymakers um, to take right now that might benefit kids, especially abused kids or kids who've experienced trauma um, through all of this, and as we move forward, what would they be? What would you say policymakers should be paying a special attention to? First, I would say policymakers should pay special attention to the role that children's advocacy centers play in helping first responders like law enforcement and ultimately helping children and families recover from abuse because abuse unfortunately has not stopped because of this pandemic and CACs have been on the front lines. So from a policy level, that work needs to be supported and recognized. Then I also, of course, would wave a magic wand that we would know the answers for how long some of these uh, precautions are going to be needed. Yeah. You know, that unknown is what makes things hard for people in terms of anxiety. So if we knew, you know, these things are going to be needed till the end of July or the end of the year, I think that would really help. Unfortunately, you know, this pandemic is unprecedented. So I don't know that that magic wand will, will happen. Um, and then I guess the, the last would be, you know, just kind of consistency across communities and how the recommendations are followed um, so that it's less confusing for children and families and just really clear communication from each business or CAC or different agency about this is what we're following because when families see that kind of clarity of what we're doing and why, it can help make them less nervous. So what question have I not asked you that I should have? The only thing I would add for CACs is just kind of thinking through the emotional safety and support of the entire multidisciplinary team and recognizing that this, you know, this pandemic is a stressful and potentially traumatic for 
um, our staff too, and those of law enforcement and Department of Social Services who have been going into homes. So it may actually be one of those higher level events for them because of them being exposed to a lot of families, just like the interviewers have been, who have been doing these who have a higher level of exposure. So if they can do things like support coping skills, like starting or ending some of their MDTs with deep breathing, which maybe people on the team might say like, oh, that's silly. That's okay. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with people thinking I'm silly if they do yeah. some of the relaxation and it helps calm them a little bit. I think we're in a role as the leaders in our communities to support healthy coping skills with stressful and traumatic events. And so if we can model that for our MDT, who in turn can model it for families, everybody will be better off. You know, it's interesting. I saw, and I can't remember if it was directly out of HHS or one of their grantees that they had put together this little mindfulness piece for caseworkers because they were recognizing yeah. the need for exactly what you're describing. And I don't know whether anything on the law enforcement side has done something um, similar to that, but I do think that there's a growing awareness that we can't ignore the impact on our workforce of all of this. And even among my own staff, it's been interesting as you start talking about potentially reopening at some point, there's an anxiety level that's there with that. So I can only imagine if you're having so much face-to-face -face contact um, with others in the community right now, what your anxiety level could be around that. Right. And I mean, we see it's again, the range for some people they've, they're sort of, they've either had training on it or they've kind of habituated or they don't perceive it as a high risk. So their anxiety is pretty low versus, you know, the people that maybe have a health condition or know somebody who's contracted the illness or have a loved one with a condition that they're worried about infecting, like they have much higher levels of anxiety. And I think it's hard for people who are on different levels of that spectrum to understand mm. the other person's experience mm. because they think, well, we've all experienced the same pandemic. Why are you so worried? And it turns out everybody's experience isn't necessarily the same because of the context of their family or loved ones or other things. Yeah, that's such a critical insight that we're not all experiencing the same pandemic. You know, there's as many pandemics as there are people in terms of our own internal experience and, you know, what our experiences right. with that in the community and with our loved ones and with our families and all of that. Well, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you making the time to talk about this. And oh. I know it'll help kids and families out there. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Teresa, for having me. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. If you like this episode, be sure to recommend our podcast to a friend or colleague. Join us on Facebook at One in Ten Podcast. And for more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.